Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. You know, 2021 was supposed to be the year of optimism. And um, feels like I lost mine somewhere along the way. Uh, look, I mean, I think we knew April was going to be a challenging month, and, and I think it's proving to be that. Uh, you know, and, and things really started to, I think, accelerate in that sense about a week ago here in Alberta. Uh, so concern about the slow vaccine rollout, concern about the variants and uh, the, the pace uh, that those variants seem to be uh, moving at. So it, uh, it has been a little uh, optimism sapping, I find. But again, I think there is still reason for optimism, reason for hope. And written a really interesting piece today uh, that you can read as well. It's uh, up at The Line, theline.substack.com, from Dr. Matt Strauss, who says that the vaccination gains pace, the argument for continued lockdowns weakens, that we appear to be turning a corner on COVID-19. This is good news. Well, I like the sound of that. Good news uh, is something that, uh, absent a vaccine, I'm certainly willing to uh, hook up to my veins at the moment here. Uh, Dr. Max Strauss is a critical care physician, assistant professor of medicine at Queen's University, as mentioned, the author of this piece here. Dr. Strauss, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me, Rob. So, as I say, I mean, at the moment, you know, there's this uh, sense that things are kind of grim at the moment. Uh, Ontario's seeing some, you know, record numbers in, in hospitals or in ICU. Uh, we're seeing uh, case counts increase rather sharply, especially here in Alberta. So, um, what, what's the antidote uh, to, to some of this pessimism right now, Matt? Right. So, what I talked about in the pieces, I, I, it's been kind of clear to me throughout the pandemic that the, um, the risk of death per case has not been constant throughout the pandemic. Um, so when we, when we had very little testing a year ago, um, as many as one in 10 uh, cases wound up being death. But in December, that number became more like one in 50 uh, cases became death. And that's probably because we're doing far, far more testing and, and finding far, far more of the mild cases. And it seems like that relationship between cases and deaths is on its way down again. And I suspect, well, in fact, I'm almost, I'm almost completely sure uh, the reason for that is uh, all the vaccines that have gone out the door. And we compare ourselves to America and the UK in terms of how many vaccines have gone out the door. Um, and sure, we haven't been as quick as those places, but we have gotten a lot of shots into arms. And we're going to see and are already are seeing, I think, a humongous decrease in the rate of deaths per case um, as the most vulnerable among us have been vaccinated. So I made the point in the piece that half of the deaths um, in Ontario over the last year have been in uh, nursing home patients. And now, by and large, all the nursing home pa patients have been vaccinated. So it, um, it's only 150,000 people uh, in nursing homes. So once, you, once you've vaccinated yeah. that many, you're going to see a, a huge decrease in the, in the rate of death. And I, I think we're seeing that already. Yeah. So in that sense, we're in a very different place right now than we were you know, a year ago, right? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> I think it's, it, uh, again, as I mentioned in the piece, it's, it's about 5% of people in Canada are over 80, and, and those folks over 80 have accounted for two-thirds of the deaths. So um, by and large, people over 80 have all been vaccinated, and so I would expect the overall death rate to be um, two-thirds less um, per case in, in, the, in, the, in this present wave. Yeah. And look, ultimately, death is is the biggest concern here, right? I mean, you know, sickness is bad and uh, complications are bad. And, you know, there, there's a lot of bad that comes with a virus like this. But if we were in a situation where nobody died from COVID, it, it would be a, it would be a much different story, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think so. I mean, I, I wouldn't. Uh, and and by all means, it, it is true that ICUs are under pressure. Um, I have worked many winters where ICUs were under a lot of pressure. And I think, um, you know, the fact that we have half as many ICU beds per capita as places like uh, the U.S. or Germany, that's been a long-standing problem. I think we need to be serious about that problem, but we haven't been for the for the 15 years or so that I've been in the, in the, in the profession. So, um, uh, I, but, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I think if we can seriously decrease the body count, then we've seriously do something really important and, and we should be uh, proud and hopeful about that. Right. And so in that sense, how, how do you measure progress? The vaccine charts look good. Uh, the case count charts look bad. Uh, how do we mm-hmm. know when we're in a better place or that we're making progress? Right. So I have never um, felt that the case counts were the thing to pay the most attention to. Because a case is not a case. A case in, a, in an 85-year-old with chronic lung disease is very likely to be fatal. Not, not certainly, but something like 20 or 30% chance of death. Um, uh, a case in a, in a 17-year-old is probably going to be asymptomatic. They might never know that they had it. Um, so a, a case is not a case. And that's why I don't think the daily case count is the thing that we should have been focusing on this past year. But it uh, unfortunately, it has been what we've been focusing on. So I think um, I think the death rate is down relative to the case rate. Um, if you look at the two curves in my, in my piece on the line, uh, for the first time they're going in opposite directions. Uh, and so I I think that's progress, um, and and I'm happy about it. Uh, you know, it, when it comes to to the the two V's, the the variants and the vaccines, and mm-hmm. there was one we wanted to keep out and one we wanted to get here, and it kind of felt like we we got that mixed up, <laughs> and it hasn't worked out well so far. But uh, to what extent do do the variants concern you, or to what extent should we worry that it's it's changed the the dynamic of this pandemic, or it might even undermine the the vaccines? What, what do you make of those concerns? Right. What, what is that, that old saying, the prayer, uh, uh, you know, God help me to, to change the things that I can and not worry about the things that I <laughs> yeah. can't, like, I, um, or the serenity prayer? I'm, I'm, I'm making a, a, I'm butchering it, but uh, <laughs> if you're asking me how much should we worry about the variants, they are concerning. I would rather have gotten original COVID a year ago than the variant today. Um, th- so it's, it's worse. Um, but mm-hmm. if you're asking me how much should we worry about it, well, I, I would say, that we should worry about it in proportion to how much our worry is going to help us to solve that problem. And I don't think worrying about it has accomplished very much so far. So um, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be flippant. I'm just saying the variants are here. I, uh, what we have done so far to arrest their spread has not worked. And so I'm, I'm, uh, I think that's unfortunate. Uh, but 
a lot of unfortunate things happen, and we have to to seek peace uh, about that. As we look forward, I mean, I, I I see better times later this year. I'm I'm kind of on the fence about whether we're going to save summer here or, or whether we, you know, we're in a position to, to have a normal summer or convince the people making these decisions that we can have a normal summer. Where, where are you at on, on that question? I think that um, we should have a normal summer. Um, I think that uh, we, have to, we have to assess the risks of COVID in relationship to the risks of everything else. Um, so COVID is bad. I, I hope you don't get it. Um, but there are a lot of bad things out there. Unemployment is bad. Divorce is bad. Uh, businesses going bankrupt are bad, is bad. Kids not being in school. Um, all of these things are bad. So mm-hmm. um, it seems pretty clear to me we're not going to completely eliminate COVID. We're going to get it down to a level where we're going to have to uh, make our peace with it. And uh, for me... That's already happened. I, I, I understand. I haven't uh, convinced the rest of the country that this is the case. But, you know, from the beginning of the pandemic, I, it's or early on, it became clear that if you're under 35 and you get COVID, you're more likely to die in a car accident in the next 12 months than under COVID. If you're 60 and you get COVID, you're more likely to die of something else um, than of your COVID. So there's the the case counts and the deaths are, are never going to go to zero. Um, at some point, we're going to have to say, well, the risk is as low as we can make it. And the risks of all these other things or the risk of just not living our lives to the fullest um, is starting to uh, overwhelm that. So that, that point may be different for different people, but I, I think that point is going to come for a lot of people very soon. Yeah, I think so. Well, an interesting read. I uh, mentioned uh, the line, theline.substack.com. Dr. Strauss, appreciate you making some time for us here today. Well, thanks for talking with me. All right. All the best. That Happy is uh, Dr. Matt Strauss, and uh, you can read his piece. It's up at uh, the line, a really interesting read, and some thoughts on uh, why there is some cause for optimism. Uh, Dr. Strauss is a critical care physician, assistant professor of medicine at Queen's University. So his thoughts uh, on where we're at and um, you know how he's, he's looking at all of this. And welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Friday afternoon as we head into the weekend. Plenty more still to get to here this afternoon, including your calls at 403-974-8255. So for political observers, an interesting weekend coming up here. The liberals are holding their policy convention. Mark Carney is going to be given uh, a keynote address. So the prospect of uh, Mark Carney playing more of a role in Canadian politics gets you excited than... This weekend uh, is right up your alley. Meanwhile, uh, the NDP are also holding their policy convention this weekend, and uh, things could get a little weird. Let's put it that way. What does this tell us about the state of progressive politics in Canada at the moment? Now, already, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is um, distancing himself from some of this. Uh, As the uh, Canadian press described it this week, uh, Singh is standing by several controversial proposals from rank-and-file party members while rejecting some more extreme ones. So I'm not sure how Mr. Singh is uh, differentiating between controversial and extreme. There's plenty of both, to be sure. As uh, our next guest writes this week in the National Post, to read through the 45 resolutions. If you're a reasonably literate observer of the world be left with the impression that these people have lost their damn minds. <laughs> uh, abolishing the military, uh, pulling out of NATO, solidarity with Cuba, hands off Venezuela. 
kind of get the idea of where this is going. Terry Glavin is an author, journalist, and a columnist, as mentioned, read his piece up at nationalpost.com and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Terry, great to have you as always. Thanks for joining us here. Hi, Rob. Nice to hear your voice. Uh, so here's the thing. I mean, I'm, I'm not an NDP supporter. I'm not inclined to vote NDP to begin with. And I guess if they want to jump off some fringe left-wing cliff, I suppose maybe that's their prerogative. But why do you suppose that, that you know, people should be concerned about all of this, even if they're not necessarily NDP supporters? Well, I think generally people in Canada who are, you know, of a fairly civilized and moderate temperament would agree that uh, the kind of liberal democracy that we have will function uh, most effectively if there is a cogent and intelligent voice from what we might call the right, what we might call the left, what we might call the center, and so on, and that um, the that at least in the mainstream, that politics that our, certainly our parents' generation would have recognized as objectively pro-fascist uh, should not be part of the currency of what purports to be the left-wing mm-hmm. party in this country. And I, I should say also at the out- outset, actually, I don't know how to situate myself politically anymore. I don't have any ideological commitments. I'm not sure that I've ever written so much as a conservative sentence in my working life. But, um, you know, it's a curious phenomenon. You know, I cover international human rights and foreign affairs. That's kind of my beat for the National Mm -hmm. Post and the Ottawa Citizen. And what I found increasingly over the past decade, actually more than a decade, it's kind of been percolating for a while, is that people that, you know, we would recognize as being at the vanguard of really important global struggles for the emancipation of women, for the uh, advance of working people, for genuine internationalism, and so on, those are the people, whether they are Syrian socialists, leftists, Democrats, young Hong Kongers, uh, Chinese Democrats, Uyghur activists, and so on, those are the people who tell me most loudly and in the saddest voices uh, how astonished they are that the organized left in Canada has vanished. The NDP is like whatever, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. There's, uh, you know, when I have very, very young and you might say woke Hong Konger activists, you know, describing to me their cognitive dissonance in understanding the Conservative Party of Canada as being their comrades and allies, um, and the NDP just being kind of not there. Um, something definitely is going on. I would say that something very peculiar has come to uh, uh, flourish in all of the places where the left used to be. And, and I also should say in defense of New Democrats, I don't think these resolutions that have made the party floor uh, or have made the convention book at the very least, they'll be debating them tomorrow afternoon, and some of them are just would make your skin crawl. You'd want to put pins in your eyes. My God. Yeah. Um, I don't think they actually reflect, and this is, this is perhaps the thing to keep our eye on, I don't think they actually reflect the views of most New Democrats. Uh, I don't think they even necessarily reflect the views of most NDP members, or even, you might even say activists, I don't know. But there's something really sinister and nasty 
that's been going on within the NDP on issues that you might call foreign policy for several years. It is, um, you know, if you are in the Kremlin and you're looking at Canadian politics, this is the sort of thing that will make you happy. Uh, if you're a Khomeinist in Tehran and you've just, uh, you know, come off a few months in which you've uh, persecuted and jailed several trade unionists and slaughtered maybe 1,500 people, you look at this and it will make you happy. If you are that grotesque Chaldeo in Caracas, Venezuela, uh, you know, Maduro, you, you know, you look at the Canadian spectrum and after having caused 4,000 of your countrymen to flee in rags in the largest refugee exodus in the world except for Syria, you will, be, you will look at the NDP uh, resolution book and you will be happy. There's something desperately wrong about this. And um, I think a lot of what happens in the NDP is that people would like to engage in conversations about, you know, how do we perhaps advance the cause of peace and freedom for the Palestinian people? How do we, how do we call, you know, advance the cause of a democratic Palestinian state living uh, in peace and side by side with Israel? And they just recoil. They just run away because the entire conversation has been taken over by these neo-Stalinist, the neo-Stalinist undead. And all of these weird zombies. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it's what I think six different resolutions that really do want to make, you know, would, would want to make you open a vein on Israel-Palestine alone. Syria, not even mentioned, okay? Yeah. Um, it, it's really, it, it's, 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 it's so grotesque. That, you know, if you're an NDP or if you're a trade union guy, you know, if you're a young woman who's just coming up and you're a woman of color and you're concerned about your, your people back home or in, in Toronto and Vancouver, I can't see how this is going to be anything but, uh, you know, revolting. <laughs> so there it is. It's a bit of a yeah, mystery, I mean, but, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, the, the absence of... Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and you, you mentioned it, I mean, the situation in Hong Kong, the situation uh, with, with Uyghurs, and, and, you know, just, just the, the general oppression uh, from, from the regime in, in Beijing. Uh, for, for a party, then, that, that is ostensibly concerned about human rights abroad, to, to be so apathetic, I don't know if that's the word, because as you point out in your column, the situation in China barely gets a mention at all in any of this. Six resolutions targeting Israel. Uh, and the mention of, of what's going on in Venezuela and Cuba is really just to praise the regime, not to, to speak for the people, but just to ignore what's happening right now in China. It's, it's hard to reconcile. I don't, I, I don't know what sense to make of it. Yeah, there is, there are, there is a, there, I think there are about three or four resolutions that at least vaguely touch on, on, on China. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, they're, they're just, you know, oh, we're, we deplore what's happening kind of resolutions. Uh, you know, basically that, you know, there, there's nothing that would rise, that would do anything more than rise to the kind of sinister and, and milk toast uh, policy that the, a lot of the liberals have adopted on this question. There's certainly nothing progressive, nothing active, nothing that offers material solidarity to people. Uh, you know, the Uyghurs, uh, Mehmet Tohi and those guys, 
from the Uyghur Rights Action Project have written directly to Jagmeet Singh, basically saying, what in the name of God has happened here? I mean, you look at China, in China, you know, the official state policy is, is Islamophobia. And they have engaged in conduct in Xinjiang that uh, any reasonable person, by the way, any jurist who's looked at this, has concluded, yes, actually, this, uh, uh, this is, meets the threshold of the 1948 uh, UN resolution on, um, on, on genocide. Um, and there is absolutely nothing in the NDP platform at a time when, you know, if you're a left winger and you think neoliberalism is really a bad deal for workers and globalization has been taken over by multinational corporations, you know, if you come from that kind of disposition, great, we're friends. You know, we can have disagreements, we can have agreements, but at least as a basis of a conversation. Um, there is nothing about slave labor and the trafficking in slave labor and the goods produced by slaves, cotton slaves, anywhere in, in, in the, the, the NDP resolution book. There's a kind of, oh, we don't like it. And then they move on to, you know, complaining. And here's another thing. You know, maybe there was some useful contribution that New Democrats think they can make to the Israel-Palestine conundrum, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's absolutely no evidence of that. But, you know, you can say, okay, that, maybe that explains the six resolutions. <laughs> well, you know, why traffic in what are essentially anti-Semitic canards while you're doing that? You know, one of the most, I think, destructive, and New Democrats have been more guilty of this than anybody, is the idea that, oh, you can't criticize Israel uh, because you'll be called an anti-Semite. Oh, you know, anybody who... Anybody who stands up and speaks for, you know, the freedom of Palestinians will be accused of, an anti, of being an anti-Semite. Right. And the, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism will be this, you know, terrible infringement on free speech. Well, show me. This is what I've been asking my comrades in the, on the left for years. Show me one instance of a reputable Zionist organization, a Jewish organization, uh, accusing somebody of being an anti-Semite for merely being critical of Israel, okay? It doesn't happen. It's not quite like, you know, putting the blood of Gentile children in matzahs or Jews poisoning wells, but it is a canard. It's rubbish. And this, to see the New Democratic Party traffic in this kind of stuff is really disturbing. I see that the resolutions are coming up tomorrow afternoon. A number of New Democrats, including Charlie Angus, uh, fair play to Charlie, has uh, said, you know, no, I don't think we should be even de debating uh, this, this, you know, the debate over, uh, you know, what, who, who's allowed to define what anti-Semitism is. Can you imagine that being thrown open to the floor of this convention? So, yeah, there's a lot of strange and sinister dynamics in play here. And, and my hope is that, you know, I'm, I'm not one of these guys that say, oh, you, the NDP, you should obviously vote liberal, you should vote conservative. Do what you will. But, I mean, get involved. You know, if you find this outrageous, if you're a decent person of the left, get involved in, in the NDP and, and say, what the hell is going on here? You know, take your party back. Yeah. 
Well, we'll see how it goes this weekend and, um, you know, what, what it all means for Jugmeet Singh going forward. Terry, I appreciate the insight as always. Thanks so much for making some time for us here. Yeah, nice talking to you. All right, cheers. Take care. Uh, Terry Glavin, author, journalist, columnist. You can read his piece at uh, nationalpost.com. So, look, again, just because resolutions are proposed or coming to, to the floor doesn't mean they've been embraced or supported. And, you know, and look, we'll, we'll certainly be fair and, and report back to you on, on Monday how this all goes. But, yeah, clearly there, there's an element in the NDP it feels almost stuck in the 70s, like that sort of revolutionary kind of far left politics that, that was around the, the, in, kind of in the Cold War, right? You know, this whole business about withdrawing from NATO and removing the nuclear ring around Russia, like that feels like, you know, it's something straight out of the, the Cold War. But look, I, I tell you this, and, and to Thierry's point, Israel is never above criticism. No country is. And certainly I think there's some fair criticism you can make of Israeli policy. In fact, Israelis do this more than anybody. Israel is a vibrant democracy with some political parties that disagree uh, very strongly on some of these key issues. So the approach you might get from one political party is a lot different than the one you're going to get from another. So Israel is not a monolith in that sense either. Uh, but to be sure, I mean, it's, it's certainly fair game to criticize Israel. Here's the problem, though, for the NDP. When you've got six different resolutions, all critical of Israel, and you've got a resolution dealing with Venezuela, which is basically hands-off Venezuela, you've got a problem. Right? Israel's not above criticism, but if you're prepared to give brutal regimes a pass and spend hours criticizing Israel, that's very revealing. So if you're going to express your solidarity with uh, the regime in Cuba, the regime in Venezuela, express sympathy for the regime in Russia, barely mention the regime in China, then I don't think you have much of a leg to stand on. And saying, oh, by the way, we've got some concerns with what's happening in Israel. Why are they at the top of your list exactly? Why does Israel get criticized? Venezuela doesn't. Why does Israel get criticized? Cuba doesn't. Russia doesn't. I'll say this about the whole situation with Jason Kenney and, and the dissent in caucus. I think ultimately it's probably better that a party leader fears caucus than the other way around. And I think in Canadian politics more recently, the, the pendulum has really swung toward leaders having an iron grip on their caucus, that nobody ever dissents, everybody marches in lockstep, and the MLAs or the MPs are just there to raise their hand and vote for government legislation when they're told to. So I, I do think that having leaders more answerable to their caucus is, is probably a good thing. So we've seen in Alberta, though, in recent history, you know, it, it, can, it can spill over into some, some uh, tumultuous times. Look at uh, Ed Stelmack. Look at Allison Redford. You know, a restless caucus can, can boil over. So is, is Jason Kenney at, at risk of that kind of an outcome here? Or... Is Jason Kenney at risk of watching this uh, grand coalition that he worked so hard to build splinter back to where it was, you know, 2015? So some big questions, I think. You know, I, I got the sense maybe this week that 
perhaps this was all a little uh, pro wrestling kind of orchestrated. That it was a little wink-wink. We're just going to go out and we're going to criticize your policies. That the premier understands why they were doing it. Because whatever the sentiment is in, in their writings, that these MLAs need to make sure that they're safe politically. And that maybe there was some coordination. But clearly everything that's come out since then suggests the opposite. Uh, that the premier's pretty concerned about all of this. And, and this pushback is very real. Enough so that, as we've heard this week, the premier even threatened to snap election, which just seems like a colossally bad idea. But joining us for some thoughts on the situation the premier finds himself in and how he gets out of it. Very pleased to welcome to the program here, Lauren Gunter, a columnist for the Edmonton Sun, Post Media, EdmontonSun.com. By the way, you can find his latest on the premier's dilemma here. Lauren, thanks so much for making some time for us. Welcome to the program. You're welcome. Always, always fun. I, you know, I do, and I, I think you, you kind of do too. I mean, I do feel some sympathy for the Premier to some extent. Mm-hmm. I, I do think he is trying to do the right thing, even if people don't agree with it, but uh, he's certainly not seeing any political benefit from that, is he? No, and you know, the funny thing about this is, and, and I think you were right in your intro when you talked about he's doing the right thing, he's allowing a little more public dissent. That That's something that's been missing in Canadian politics, both provincially and federally now, for 50 years. You know, MPs and MLAs are not independent. They they are heavily whipped on every issue. They're discouraged from making any public statements that would seem to disagree with cabinet and and the leader. Uh, and I think it's healthy to have a little bit of dissent. And it's funny because you know people in our business and academics will say, "Oh, yeah, there's far too much party discipline." And then as soon as the party discipline seems to break down, they say, "Oh, it's a huge problem for the <laughs> the pre-, you know." So you got to one way or the other. I I think he's handled it quite well. Uh, I'm I'm not sure that it, you know the cynic in me says, "Well, maybe they orchestrated this," as, as you were alluding to. Uh, I'm not. I'm quite certain that's not what happened. That this was he allowed an outlet valve because otherwise. They might have had a couple of people decide to go become independent. Um, He's he's got to keep uh, the the coalition together because without the coalition together, then there's a chance the NDP will win. I I think despite the polling numbers, uh, as long as the UCP remains a single party, it will very likely win the next election. But but those are all the things that are going on in his head all at the same time. And then on top of that, of course, he has to deal with making what he believes is the right decision on the pandemic and dealing with the economy. And so th- this is a, uh, an ugly time to be premier of Alberta. Well, yeah. And I mean, the, the mood in, in Alberta at the moment, too. I mean, it's really polarized. We see that there's this uh, Angus Reid poll out today shows only 12 uh, percent think that we've struck the right balance on restrictions. And you got just over 40 percent on either side, either saying we've gone too far or not far enough. So I, yeah. I don't know how any politician you know, threads that needle. Yeah, I'm in that tiny sliver in the middle uh, in that, you know, I look around at, at other provinces and aside from B.C., uh, who are equal to us in, in the laxity of the restriction, um, you know, we've we've had it pretty good. Um, if you have to work out in uh, the public, if you have to leave your home in order to work, uh, then then your life has been difficult for the last Year. If you live in a tiny uh, apartment and, and you don't have a lot of uh, space and opportunity to get out, then there are times when we're locked down and it's, it's very, very miserable. But, you know, for the most part, I go to the grocery store the same number of times I always did. I go to the 
drugstore. I, you know, I, aside from being able to go to social events and sporting events, you know, there, there hasn't been a huge change for a lot of us. Uh, so I think in that regard, they have struck a, a good balance. And, and when they needed to, they brought the numbers down. And let's hope this time uh, they're going to do it too. But, but you know, people are so eager to be done with all of this. I, I get oh, yeah. that, you know. Yeah, and I think that's what we're feeling. And, and whatever yeah. we get here in terms of a wave or restrictions, I, I mean, it's plausible that this could be the last go-around with all of this, yeah. and we, we certainly hope so. Yeah. Uh, but that becomes, you know, the, the tricky thing for the Premier in the short term. If they need to, to, or they feel they need to tighten things up a little bit more, does, does this push some of these MLAs over the edge? Like, how far are they prepared to go here, do you think? Well, I mean, are we looking at... Um, are we looking at restrictions in the major urban centers versus mm-hmm. uh, province-wide? Um, it, it's interesting that some of the MLAs who have complained the loudest about the restrictions being applied to their rural or small uh, urban uh, ridings have among the highest per capita infection rates in the province. Uh, but yeah. they don't look at it that way. They look at Calgary with 3,000. They look at Edmonton with you know 1,800, and they say, ah, the problem is just in the big city. But when you when you factor that over the population of those two cities, we're, we're, you know Edmonton and Calgary are middle of the pack, slightly below the the middle of of uh, infection rates. Um, but if you are living in a, a riding that has communities that are you know twelve hundred people and and there's only fifteen fifteen who are sick, you think that's not many people. Yeah, but as a percentage of your total population, it's higher than Edmonton's in Calgary. So, you know, I, 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 Angela Pitt, for instance, in, in, um, in Airdrie, she's been one of the most vocal opponents of more restrictions. But Airdrie has a, an infection level similar to Edmonton's in Calgary. It just has a smaller population, so the raw number is smaller. Um, and, and, you know, Kenny looks at that, and a lot of the dissident MLAs don't. And uh, as a result, he's going to have to go very carefully if he goes any deeper. Are we going to have a stay-at-home order like they have in Ontario? I don't think so. We've always been a little more comfortable with a slightly higher level of infection in Ontario. Ontario gets its knickers in a twist about everything, and this is a, this is one of those areas where I think it's overreacted. But, um, yeah. you know, it, it's a very, very difficult balance because, as you said, you know, there's about 40% of the people who are tut-tutting anyone who goes the wrong way down the aisle in the grocery store. Uh, and, and there are 40% of the people who said, I'm not wearing a mask. This is ridiculous. I'm sick and tired of this. So how do you reconcile those two? It's very hard to do. Oh, yeah, definitely. And and that's that's the challenge here. I, I do think looking in a longer term here, look, you know, we're a couple of years away from an election in Alberta, yep. um, right? By, by all accounts, you know, things are, are going to start to get better, both in terms of the pandemic and, and mm-hmm. with that comes some economic recovery. You know, it, it's possible that a year from now, we'll, we'll be having a very different conversation about the premier's political fortunes and the mood in Alberta and the mood in his cabinet. So is it simply a case, do you think, Lauren, of, of him getting through these, these next few months in terms of preserving his position? I think that's a good part of it. I think the other half of that is... He has to be, he has to get better at retail politics. Uh, I mean, Alberta is a, a small enough political unit that you can reach out and touch nearly everybody. And he did that very, very effectively when he was trying to bring the Tories and the Wild Rose together. He now needs to do that uh, once it's possible for him to travel and have events and rallies and pancake breakfasts and 
steak dinners and stuff. He has to do a lot more of that uh, to reintroduce himself to Oprah because he doesn't, despite the fact that he, he may be as smart as any premier we've ever had, he doesn't create a brand for himself. Right. And and so he's going to have to get out and do more retail politics because I think that's where you win or you lose in Alberta. You, you, people, I mean, Ralph Pine was not a dummy, but but he was portrayed as a dummy by a lot of people in the media. But boy, he had a brand, and that is what he got elected four times. You know, that, mm-hmm. that's that's one of the big things. And I think Kenny has to do that. But, but I, also, I think they have to be much harder on the feds. You know, we are behind on the pandemic because the Fed didn't get vaccine soon enough. And we are faltering economically because the Feds are trying to get rid of our number one industry. And he just has to hammer them on that. And that may be a cliche in Alberta politics, but it's the truth. Yeah, look, even Ralph had um, some dissenters. I mean, what were they, the uh, the Deep Six back in the day, yeah. right, who were trying to push Ralph in, in, in maybe a more conservative direction? So I think, you know, there there is some precedent but, for that, but it's a different situation, isn't it? The irony in that is that Ed Stelmack was one of the Deep Six, and then when he <laughs> became premier, he became one of the most free-spending premiers we had. Yeah, so, you know, I, it's so funny how things turn out, though. It is. Uh, but, and the thing for Kenny, though, and, and you look at what he was able to pull off, you know, bringing the parties together, winning the, the leadership mm-hmm. races, it, it was easier in a sense, wasn't it, to be in opposition and, and rally everyone behind the idea of getting rid of the NDP. Once yep. you've done that, and, and what are you rallying people around at that point? It becomes more of a challenge, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. Uh, government is always a challenge that way. And, you know, there's that old axiom in politics that that oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them. And so when you are in the government, you're always running against being defeated at the next election. And that's not as much fun as being in opposition and being able to hammer the the government, the unpopular government again and again and again. So that's why I think in Alberta politics, it's always worked to treat Ottawa as the government and the Alberta right. government as the opposition and run that way. And I think Kenny just has to perfect that. All right. Well, we'll see how it all plays out from here. Lauren, appreciate your thoughts on all of this. And uh, again, thanks for making some time for us here today. Hey, you bet. All right. Cheers. Lauren Gunter, columnist for the Edmonton Sun, Post Media, edmontonsun.com. You can find his latest uh, looking at uh, Jason Kenny's woes here. And uh, yeah, he's getting beat up from both sides. So can he survive this? How much of an existential threat is this to, to his leadership? You know, look, the one thing I'll say about Jason Kenney and his approval rating, which is just uh, in in the toilet in this latest poll here, uh, at least in terms of the response to COVID, only 23% approve of the job that he's doing. Uh, that's, That's not good. Why do you suppose it is? That, for example, John Horgan in BC has a 55% approval rating on handling the, the pandemic. I would actually make the argument that in, in some respects, the situation in BC is more worrisome than the situation in Alberta at the moment. That said, though, they're pretty comparable. So why do we see such a, a drastic difference? Uh, more than twice the level of support in BC for John Horgan than here in Alberta for Jason Kenney. I think the big difference is that John Horgan's base isn't upset with the job he's doing. 
clearly Jason Kenny's base is. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.